I'm Barry Alexander Brown. You're listening to Cinepod. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello and welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya Friedman. Oh, wait a second. Oh, no. Oh, wait a second. Ben Rock, you're Who's among this? the living. You're 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 back. You're I'm back. back. I'm back from a little thing called COVID nineteen, and I'm here to advise all of our listeners not to get it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. They've never heard that before. Yeah. They've only heard to go out and get it. So yeah, that's... really maximum of two stars on Yelp uh, for oh. me. <laughs> two stars for 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 covid it's, it's, yeah so it, it was it was slightly above ebola <laughs> <laughs> for real uh yeah no it, it was awful people who compare it to the flu I, I you could compare it to the flu i would compare it to being like a hundred times worse than the worst flu i've ever had i totally get how this kills people i was uh, basically bedridden my whole family got it including my two-year-old son he luckily had no symptoms, which a lot of, you know, very young children do not get symptoms. So, I mean, he had a few symptoms, but nothing, uh, nothing terrible. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's not good. Lost my sense of smell, lost my sense of taste. Uh, about 10 days into it, apropos of nothing, got full body hives. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's all kinds <laughs> of weird symptoms nobody talks about. Did you get COVID toes? I did not get COVID toes, but the hives thing, like the, you know, if you uh, look up what it does to your skin, hives are one of the things. And it was weird because I was like, wow, my knee kind of itches. Oh, it's like I, I was bit by a mosquito or something. And then I looked and I'm like, yeah, that ain't a mosquito. That looks like, you know, friggin' leprosy on my knee. And it quickly spread like arms, legs everywhere. It was, it, it, it was Ooh. awful. And I know we're, I know we're here to Shutter. talk about cinematography, but I also uh, no I'm, we're we're here uh, to talk I'm, about a graphic depiction of your uh, I just want to be COVID nineteen. I I just want to be a cautionary tale for anyone. And by the way, if anyone's been listening to us talk about this this whole time, I've been extremely vigilant. Don't go anywhere. Mm. Don't go yes, inside. Hypochondriatic. Always yeah. wearing a mask. You know, we we do all our groceries by curbside. We we like we do not interact with people. And yet somehow, and we don't, we don't honestly know how it somehow got into the house. I was the first one to have symptoms. That doesn't even mean I was the first one who had it. We don't know. And it's awful. And everyone's symptoms were different. So, uh, you know, I, I counted uh, the number of times I've seen you in person, basically since the lockdown of 2020. And I came up with zero. Zero yeah, it was zero. <laughs> I, zero. I remember the lockdown was just beginning when we did our last round of host wraps and you were like methodically sterilizing everything inside hot rod cameras and we were keeping our distance. And I remember thinking, are we are we going to do this every time? And then literally by the next time it was like, let's there, just there do was this no over more times. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyone who belittles this thing, anyone who acts like it's not a big deal, anyone who acts like, oh, we'll get herd immunity if everyone just gets sick. In America alone, we've lost over 450,000 people with only 20% of the population getting infected. So if you do that math and extrapolate that, you know, you can pretty quickly realize in the neighborhood of like two and a half million people would have to die in order for us to reach, you know, so-called herd immunity. And plus we have, you know, multiple vaccines right now. 
now and it's just a matter of getting them produced fast enough and and stuck into people's arms and also if people uh, will stop being assholes like the people at Dodger Stadium who were protesting the vaccination site and shutting it down hopefully we can get enough vaccines into enough people that we can uh, we can slow this thing down to a crawl and we don't have and no one has to go through what I went through or uh, you know frankly far worse which is what a lot of people have gone through all right let's talk about some cinematography yeah let's let's get the hell out of this man <laughs> yeah you're, you're, you know you look like you've got color in your skin though i can tell from the zoom thing here and you, you don't sound like you're missing your sense of smell you sound like you're 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 how, does, how do okay. i sound like i have a sense of smell well, you know, if you're talking through your nose, it kind of is that's it, it doesn't work yeah, like Professor that. Professor Frank. No, yeah, I, nev- okay, I, yeah. Ne- I never had super congestion in, in my head or chest anywhere, but I did lose my sense of smell and taste. Ooh. And uh, that was weird because everything just tasted like I was eating a big wad of clay. Like it was just Ooh. a big, a big flavorless wad of nothing. It was your private hell, Ilya. You wouldn't have been able to taste anything. If nothing else, that should make you that much more vigilant. Like the idea of you not being able to taste things. I just don't even know who you would be I, at that point. I, I'm pretty vigilant as it is right now. So and uh, I don't know. I have a lot of non flavorful things. So, you know, the yeah, F you, Ben. Thanks a lot for, you know, trying to <laughs> trying to draw me into this here as if like somehow I'm like. Like out there looking out every every handrail and doorknob. So you know, look. No, no. I, mean, I know. <laughs> I know that you've been super safe. I'm just saying. Like, I can't imagine what would happen if you were unable to taste things because you love the food. Hmm. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate. It. Okay. So hey, let's take care of some housekeeping. One. Big props to Bill Totolo who stepped into your oh my God. big shoes. Thank you and did so a wonderful much, Bill. job, Bill. You, yeah, you're the best. I love listening to to you do the host rap solo the first week that I was out. Although, again, I listened to it while I was fully in thrall of COVID, so you were part of some fucked up fever dream that I was having that whole time. But uh, <laughs> I I, uh, I was starting to come out of it last weekend, and I just needed to rest up a little bit more. And it was uh, great to hear Bill do it. Uh, Bill is a a wonderful person, and I think you know like the perfect person to bring on. Uh, yeah, if if you he, ever can't he, do he it, I'll, it, I'll bring Bill on and uh, and and, do, and have him do it in your stead. Yeah, you know, if you do that though, then I may not get my job back. Bill will just be the new, <laughs> the new co-host. Uh, okay, and then we got to give away a book. You know, we were all set to give away a book, Bruce Van Dusen's book, and uh, you were out, and then it didn't happen, and then uh, let's do it now. Pick a number between uh, one and twenty. Um, fourteen. Fourteen. Okay, looking, looking. Mia Moran, you just won the Bruce Van Dusen book. Congratulations, Mia, for your uh, comment here, which you say that we're your favorite podcast. So that's wonderful. Thank thank you so much, Mia. We'll take it. Uh, Yeah, we're going to have uh, Alana Cody reach out to you about getting you your new book. Probably she'll send you a Facebook message or something like that. And uh, yeah, we'll get we'll figure out a way to get this book to you. It'll be great. You'll love it. All right. So housekeeping uh, over. What do, what do we have to talk about uh, this week now that you're back? Something not COVID related? I have something super not COVID related. Ooh, and okay. uh, it's a little sad. But as we all know, Christopher Plummer passed away last week. He was 90 years oh, yes. old. An amazing actor who, uh, you know, has just got a storied career, has been in a bazillion movies. We've all seen him in lots of stuff. You know, my personal favorite might be 12 Monkeys, but he's 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 in so many movies famously replaced Kevin Spacey and all the money in the world just about three years ago after they'd made the movie knives out. (laughs) Yeah. Knives out. I mean, just aces. So uh, it made me think about a random interaction I had had with my wife's 
parents, my in-laws, where I had mentioned to them that I had never seen the sound of music. And they are extremely Catholic people and very involved in their Catholic world. And Alicia's mother's favorite movie of all time is The Sound of Music. Now, I am not the kind of person who you would pick to show The Sound of Music to. But in uh, what I'm going to call a a brilliant turn of Christmas trollery, they got me (laughs) the DVD of The Sound of Music. Not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before. And I was sort of like, eh. and I never, I never watched it. But I mean, that is like some some prime grade A trolling right there. Mm-hmm. You know, because how, love- how could you call yourself a movie buff if you've never seen the yeah. 1965 musical Sound of Music? The Sound of Music, Best Picture winner, directed by Robert Wise, the editor mm-hmm. of Citizen Kane, the director of The Haunting, the director of Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, there, th- there's a lot to love about it. It's uh, Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh, you know, Julie it, Andrews. It was it was one of Rogers and Hammers. I think it's their last musical, if I'm not mistaken. Oscar Hammerstein was on his deathbed, coming up with lyrics for "I Am 16, Going on 17." That piece of trivia was given to me by my friend Ezra Buzzington, who's also a horror guy, but uh, also a theater guy, um, and, and actually won five Academy Awards. Including best picture, best director, best sound, and best film editing, and best music. Surprisingly not best cinematography for Ted D. McCord, who uh, was a pretty story DP of his time. Like, you And know, he did get nominated, though. He did not, He was nominated. So he, Like, he shot know. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre in East of Eden, and he's got an amazing career. Uh, he passed away in 1976, so about 11 years after this movie. But I really think it's an interesting... Uh, like you know, he he did lose to Doctor Zhivago, though. I mean, to yeah. Freddie Young. So it's not. I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, Doctor Zhivago is Doctor Zhivago. David Lean. I, I would actually say yeah. Doctor Zhivago is my favorite David Lean movie, and I say that as not the world's biggest David Lean fan, but uh, you can't be a filmmaker or a film lover and not at least appreciate what David Lean did. And Doctor Zhivago is a pretty amazing film. Um, but it, it was very interesting because uh, Alicia and I have had this. ongoing conversation about doing a podcast where we go year by year in the Oscars from the beginning and watch all the Oscar uh, winners. I don't know that you would want to watch every Oscar nominated film since the beginning of the Oscars because that could (laughs) take over your entire life. But I, I always think it's interesting to kind of go back into the vault and look at something that won best picture and kind of say, what does it say about what society was at that time? So the the play, The Sound of Music, comes out in 1959, and this movie. So this movie's like six years after uh, the play premiered, and it has some images. Whether you've seen the movie or not, you know a bunch of the music in it. Probably you've probably heard "These Are Some of My Favorite Things." You've probably heard "I Am 16 Going on 17." You've probably heard "Edelweiss." Like there's Surrey with the fringe on top. That is from Oklahoma. <laughs> So uh, I thought I had you. I thought I had you on that one. So. I uh, I worked on a production of Oklahoma once uh, oh, at the, at the oh, Civic okay. Theater of Central Florida in the running crew. So you, you can't fool oh. me with your Oklahoma or your fiddlers on the roof. Watch that fringe and see how it flutters when <laughs> well, I drive. But it's the, it's the, the same writers. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, you we've all seen that iconic shot that opens. It, it doesn't actually open the movie, but it's sort of the pinnacle of the opening sequence where we're on a helicopter today. You would do it on a four hundred dollar drone and it would look a lot better. But they're they're on a helicopter kind of crabbing towards Julie Andrews as she's spinning around on the hill. And, you know, the stories are that the helicopter got so close to her, it literally knocked her over every time. And oh, she wow. was 
completely uh, they're shooting in Bavaria or something in the middle of nowhere in this in this gorgeous it was right by the Alps I think and it, it's such an iconic shot but it's funny when you know that and you watch it you go like oh they cut away at the last usable frame of that shot clearly but uh you know the the cinematography is honestly is 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 riveting and is amazing uh it's it gets a little uh like a full wad of vaseline on the lens when the julie andrews character and the christopher Plummer character uh, start falling in love spoiler alert everyone they fall in love um <laughs> she's a nun it's very uh controversial she has to like leave the uh leave leave the abbey i don't know but uh, it, it's it's very interesting because also like you know it's hard like when I think of of the '60s, mid to late '60s, probably the first movie that pops into my head is always Night of the Living Dead, 1968, and I'm like that was three years after this, okay. and and this movie feels so old fashioned for the 1960s, but at the same time like it's impossible to to not be kind of in awe of its cinematic legacy. Hundred percent. The '60s was an interesting transitionary period. You you had tons of uh, hippie movement sort of stuff coming into the mainstream. You also had like the tail end of television of certain like shows. Uh, one one of my favorite television theme shows of all time, Rawhide, was ending in 1965, same mm. year as uh, as this came out. Where they have the line in there, "Hell bent for leather," which you know. <laughs> which ended up becoming another song too, actually a famous metal song called Hellbent for Leather, but it's, yes, Rawhide. And you've got this weird transition of sort of like, you know, the old black and white world. In 1965, the Academy Awards had two categories for cinematography. They had best black and white cinematography and best color cinematography. Mm. It would take, you know, years still more before those got merged again, but color was still such a a monumental and almost novel thing that, you you know, we, we don't think about it because there was so much great stuff that was shot in color back then, yep. but black and white was still very very much uh, in the world and uh i think that television and vietnam and all the other sort of stuff that's happening uh, uh, really kind of catapulted the world of cinema and television into a new collective sort of mind space not to to say that there wasn't like this sort of thing going on with korea and world war ii but i think that vietnam became the first televised war and i want to yeah. say that there was a lot of like changing of the american psyche at that time and so. even with the nazi subtext that is running rampant through the sound of music it really doesn't feel like the nazis are a stand-in for anything to do with the vietnam war or anything to do with the kennedy assassination that had happened three years earlier or or anything else it is they are it is literally about the nazis they're the naziest nazis you can imagine in in film they're just terrible sadistic cruel monstrous people and uh it's stuff like that that makes it feel sort of like a relic and you know maybe that what's making it relicy is that we are talking about rogers and hammerstein sort of towards the end of their career or at the end of their their collaboration julie andrews is you know timeless and brilliant christopher Plummer, as i was reading about it apparently hated making this movie and during the, like the whole there's a giant climax of the movie, which is like a, a talent show going on in Austria uh, where the Von Trapp family, who are the protagonists of the movie, are basically trying to use this talent show as cover to sneak away and get away from the Nazis. You know, and the last shot is them walking through the mountains to, to get away. And apparently Christopher Plummer through that whole sequence was drunk like he like he just <laughs> he, he hated doing it and he was drunk. And while I was watching it, I, I really couldn't help but think about that. Uh, by the way, I should point out, too, that even though my in-laws gave me this on DVD, I watched it on Disney Plus 
So, you know, it looked, you know, it, it, it I'm sure that Disney plus has the most clean and pristine transfer of the print that, uh, that could be had uh, much better than a DVD. And it, again, it really is just astonishing to look at story wise. Uh, it's, uh, not, uh, it, it is deliberately paced in a way that we don't paste movies very deliberately these days, uh, right down to even having an intermission. There's an intermission in the movie. <laughs> it's a long well, movie. When it, hit, when it hit the intermission, well, it, I was like, really? Oh, my God, really? When I worked at the video <laughs> store, it came on two VHS cassettes. You couldn't get it just on one. It was like it was on two. You had to, it's, you had to switch, I mean, it's, switch cassettes. It's, it's also it's not like them. the longest thing. I want to say it was like two and a half hours. It's not, you know, it's not a short movie, but it's not like you, you definitely have the attention span for it if you can watch any movie i just think that when you watch it today you would say okay well i can fold all these storylines together and kind of more efficiently kind of deliver this story but you know at at the same time who the fuck am i to fuck with uh you know a legendary (laughs) uh musical like this uh but anyway i i I just thought it was uh, a, a point of interest more than uh more than anything else and, you know, it is a, probably a little bit of a throwback because it was a musical first and the musical came out like six or seven years earlier. Mm. So, you know, it's like and they probably wanted to, to be as as true to that as possible in the movie and, you know, include as much as possible from from the, my from guess the play, is so. having never seen the play. My guess is they changed almost nothing from the play. Mm. Hey, you know what I realized, Ben, we, we've been so self-absorbed. We have not even said who's on this this episode. We haven't even said that. We, I mean, we usually say that right at the beginning, but. But this we time, usually say, we well, and yeah, I, that actually occurred to me while I was ranting about the sound of music. But yes, it is Barry Alexander Brown part two. Well, it's not exactly part two. It's like Barry Alexander Brown returns. He returns. He comes. He comes back to our show. He's been on. He was on before talking about Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. He's got a new movie called Son of the South, which I've seen, which is great. And we're going to get to the interview in just a minute here with Barry Alexander Brown. I think we can just go ahead and do that now. What do you think? All right, we'll do it. Barry Alexander Brown part two. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Barry Alexander Brown, welcome back to Cinepod, the Cinematography Podcast. When last we met, it was right before the Oscars, and you were up for uh, Black Klansman. So, yeah. uh, you gave me a wonderful preview of uh, Son of the South, and we t- we talked about it sort of. Uh, in that very sort of nascent stage, you'd been doing lots of pre-production, but it hadn't yet started to go. And uh, I really wanted to have you back on the show when it was ready. And it debuts on uh, on VOD service uh, this Friday. And in theaters. Is, and, and 140 theaters, too. Fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I hadn't heard that part. That, that's great. So you'll have a chance to see Son of the South on the big screen or on VOD. Uh, your choice uh, coming up uh, February 5th, which is just a couple days away. So, Barry, tell me about the experience of turning your, I, I want to say, your, I, I don't want to say like pet project. Oops. Oh, I, I thought uh, you said the magic word. After, every time I say pet project, I've got to put $5 into a jar. <laughs> Uh, all right. So this is a, a long time coming, though. You've been uh, developing and uh, have produced this this project for a long time. Tell me about the uh, tell me about the journey of how of getting it from script to screen. So yeah, I mean, you're, as you're right, it was it was long. It, it was long, and there was even a point where I just completely just gave up. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, I did. You, you, you know, we were. We were running into the same thing over and over and over. People would read the script and they would get all excited about it and then they would cool down and disappear. It was just crazy. It was just 
this thing that would happen over and over and over. I just couldn't understand it. And we went on like that for about five years or so, five or six years, really feeling like we're throwing ourselves against the wall. And then at some point I got a call from Daniel Radcliffe um, at the very end of 2017. And he said, you know, I, I've just read your script. I love it. I mean, you, you know, I'd like to play Bob Zellner. And I was like, what? You know, I mean, I don't even yeah, know yeah. where he got the script from. I have no idea. And, you know, we went on like this for about a month. He had another project in South Africa that was a very similar kind of film in which he played somebody who showed up for the anti-apartheid movement. And he felt like he couldn't do both of them. So he finally said, listen, I, I, I committed myself to the other project first and I just have to do it. And so he, he backed out. But what happened was then everybody got excited again. And it just completely revived the project. So uh, I really owe Daniel Radcliffe a lot. I, I do. And so that whole year of 2018 was a thing of really pulling more people as producers onto the project. Colin Bates came on. He lives in New Orleans. Uh, Stan Erdrich came on. Uh, he's from Birmingham. And Stan and I would go down to Birmingham then and Montgomery, where I'm from, and uh, meet with people. And, and Stan really began to raise the true first money for the film. And because the first money is always the hardest money, always yeah, the hardest yeah. money. And so once we had that first money and it was a sizable amount of money, then it became something that we were really going to do. And the movie does take place in Montgomery for a big portion of it. And it's a hometown for you. So tell me a little bit about getting to work in your in your hometown and get to tell the story. I know Bob Zellner, real person. Was he a, a figure in, in Montgomery, would well, you say? he didn't uh, live in Montgomery. He lives down in southern Alabama uh, around Daphne. And, and so Bob could come up as a two-hour drive. And so he could come up anytime. I rented a house, a great house that was in downtown Montgomery, an old house. And I remember going into that house that first day and I turned off the air conditioner. It was 90 degrees outside in September. And I opened up these windows and this rush of air came through. And it was the kind of, there was a smell and it was the humidity and the weight of this air. They just took me right back to my childhood. And I don't know, it felt very, very comfortable. And, you know, and Montgomery really came out for the film. I guess I really completely didn't expect everybody to. You know, I, I thought that maybe there would be a lot of suspicion and there would be a lot of, who are you to come and may, oh, you're going to do another civil rights movie, blah, 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 blah. But it really wasn't like that. Quite frankly, it was a delight to shoot there. That, that, that's wonderful. Now, of course, you really are shining a light on someone who is an incredible ally to the Freedom Riders, an incredible ally to civil rights, but for the most part, overlooked by history, overlooked even even locally. And um, I think it's wonderful that you that you chose to, to do this because, you know, I think that any time that you are, are making a movie that has anything to do with uh, civil rights or the Freedom Riders or or, or really, actually, I'm, I'm going to go even broader than this here. I'm going to I'm going to go off the off the deep end. Bear with me one second here. Uh, 
there's so many tropes in Hollywood of, especially when it has to do with with race relations and uh, the white savior, the white savior sort of sort of character. And this could have so easily been a movie where it's just the character of of the white savior, and it's not. And it's interesting though because like there is literally a scene where Bob Zellner uh, is saving people at this riot at at the the Montgomery pulling bus people, riot. He's pulling people out of the riot. He's pu- yeah, pulling people out out of harm's way, but. What I think is really interesting is that the whole rest of the movie and basically everything else to, to say that it, that he's a white savior is like the most superficial criticism you could make, because really he is being saved by all the people around him. It's it's like he is he is being redeemed in that, uh, you know, he's having this awakening, this epiphany, this like realizing that he doesn't have to live this way that he was brought up. He doesn't have to, you know, hate and believe like, you know, his his grandfather's in the clan and he doesn't have to fulfill that role. And and. The, the movie does a wonderful job of, you know, telling his story from his perspective and and the realization that he can tell what's right from wrong and not just go along with the crowd. And I think that's really the, the magic of, of Son of the South. And uh, I really enjoyed the movie. And I think a, a lot of other people out there, there will as well. Certainly people who enjoy a movie going experience and it's not a bunch of, uh, I want to say, superficial level criticism. As, as and, and, it doesn't uh, think, preach, and the film yeah. doesn't preach to you. Not not at all. Yeah, yeah, it pr- pulls you in. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you feel his dilemma and you feel his experience. But I mean, I can't agree with you more. And I certainly didn't want to do uh, a white savior movie. Uh, you have an incredible cast. I mean, uh, Lucas Till does absolutely carry the movie from the protagonist perspective. He's, you know, he's the all-American set in the South. And, you know, I, I think he fits perfectly. He fits perfectly into the role. But you also have Cedric the Entertainer, who is, is a wonderful supporting role. And Lex Scott Davis as Joanne, who uh, is also fantastic. And and Doc. Doc is a wonderful... Oh, Jake a wonderful, Abel. Jake Abel. Yeah, so, so good that like uh, here's what this movie does, I think, really well. And I think it'll do well with white audiences, too, in that there's an awful lot of people who remember the South exactly like this. I think that that there's a there's a real slice of reality that that comes from this and the absolutely overt and casual nature of the Ku Klux Klan being interwoven into daily life. And I, I, you know, here I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm, I'm born way after the fact here and not having really spent much time in the South. I, I don't have the same, uh, you know, uh, perspective, but, but it has the ring of truth. It just had the ring of truth for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it rings true, but it also rings true because I, I do know some people who, uh, that's where they're from. That's the era they're from. And, uh, they, they moved away, but they're like that. This is the reality of life. This is the reality of life in in some southern states, particularly Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, that's that was really hardcore. Uh, I mean, even uh, Georgia as well. But the people I know mostly were from uh, Mississippi and Alabama. So, but also, you know, I had Julia Armand, who uh-huh. just a fantastic actress, you know, and she plays Virginia Durham, who is quite frankly a personal hero of mine. She decided, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Tr- try and get Virginia's accent. This is a tough accent to get. Virginia's from the same part of Alabama as my grandmother. Gorgeous accent. So difficult. And yet she worked on it. She worked with a coach. And she nailed it. And she and she was so into it. I mean, she's English. You know? And, and she was so there that in one take, she delivered a line to somebody to one of the characters who's gotten her car burnt. And all of that happened. Her car did get burnt. 
And so she says to this woman, I'm so glad you came back in one piece because Clifford's going to want to tear you apart. You know? <laughs> and she, just, she just delivered this line. I didn't write this line. And yeah. I, I mean, I was in a different room. Thank God, because I just started laughing. Because I thought, oh, that is so gorgeous. That is so gorgeous. I've got one question for you that, uh, and this is something that I'd heard a little bit about, but I think is really wonderfully layered into your into your movie, is the reoccurring theme that the media is calling white people who are out there supporting the uh, black marchers, the freedom riders, as commies, that they're communists who are sent in from Russia. They are there. These are commies who are there. And it, as if to like distinguish between a non-Southerner uh, or a non-local white person, like it couldn't, as if it couldn't possibly be anyone who disagreed who was white with the status quo. I mean, did you research uh, or have access to original sort of broadcast recordings where they were using this stuff, or is this is this from the script or from the book, or where does the where does the commie uh, angle go go for to try to like uh, dehumanize the the white people who were supportive of of the black people? The accusation that they were communists was so prevalent, you know, and and the thing about it, it was a slur. It was a slur mm-hmm. that just got tossed around to, yeah, to say, yeah, to dehumanize somebody and to, and to scare people. And the mm. thing about it is there was a the scene in which Bob is heading down to the riot. And he told me that when he was heading down to the riot in 1961, he had the car radio on and he was listening to this guy who was a commentator on, the, uh, on one of the local Montgomery stations, just ranting about the communists that have shown up. And I, I was tried to get this recording, and I couldn't. I couldn't find it anywhere. So you know, I just wrote what he told me. He listened to, and it was certainly an easy way to dismiss somebody, and also to get other people fired up. You know, the common. I mean, I write this line: the communists have landed on our shores. But there are no shores in Montgomery, Alabama, for one thing. There are not any shores. You know, but it sounds great, right? I mean, you envision yeah, yeah. ships and. Rolling the Red Scare. Oh, yeah. We fought so many wars and cold wars over the, the, you know, the threat of communism. Everyone you know, grew up at a, a certain time doing nuclear attack drills, hiding under desks. So it's, uh, That's right. Yeah, it's, right, right. Put it, your head between your knees and kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs> That's the one. Uh, well, uh, Barry, what's your hope for this movie? I mean, I know, uh, you know, bringing, bringing a movie into the world is kind of like bringing a child. I mean, you, you, you spend a lot of passion, a lot of time and, and years, years of your life uh, putting it together. How do you hope this, this movie uh, will, will be received out there in, in the world? What's your what's your your wish? I mean, my wish is that is that inspires people. I want people inspired by it. I mean, cause I have seen the film with audiences right before the pandemic shut everything down, and people were just fired up. The energy was just so great after, at the end of it. I mean, that was so satisfying. Because for me, Bob is an inspiring figure, and I wanted him to inspire. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. but I also, I also beyond that, I want to take people into the South of that time and that place, the place that I knew, to make it real for them. I think that the movie really does a good job of showing the the early indoctrination, like when uh, Bob Zellner tells his his story about being lifted up as a boy to drink from the white 
Okay, I gotta tell you something. That actually didn't happen to Bob. That happened. That happened to me. That was you. That was your. That was your your experience. Wow. It it was so searing for me that I thought it's the kind of thing that does happen to you across the board. Everybody has something like this that happens. In the movie, that feels so real. It feels so real. I mean, and I, I think it's actually, it's wonderful that it, it's it's a moment from, from your life. I have to ask, though, now, too, any other moments in that, that movie that, that were more from your life than, than from the book or from Bob's? Or it, it was that no, the, the, the I, one no, moment? that was okay. the one. That was the one. Well, Barry, I'm really, really glad that you were able to, to squeeze in some time for us to talk about this. And uh, I'm really uh, looking forward to hearing from more people who see this movie and the reaction uh, that it gets. And I, I'm glad that you got it done and got it done in such a rewarding and fantastic way. I, uh, I don't really have any other questions for you. Is there anything else that you, uh, you wanted to, to mention while we've got you here? I do. You, you brought up the grandfather and Brian Dennehy. Yeah. You know, this is Brian Dennehy's last film. Brian did such a marvelous job, you know, and it, and to some extent, you know, he wanted to do the film because he read the script and really liked the script. But, you know, Bob's grandfather was a pretty horrible human being, you know, pretty horrible ideas, you know, and I wrote that stuff, that all the stuff that, that Brian had to deliver, all those lines, all those horrible, horrible lines. and. And, you know, when we were shooting that scene, which is one of the first scenes we shot of them on the bench, I'm listening to this horrible speech that the grandfather's given. And I'm thinking, it's done so well by Brian Dennehy. He makes it so alive and so real. And I think to myself, who wrote this stuff? this dialogue? They hit me a second later. Oh, my Lord, it was me. I wrote it. Oh, no. Oh, no. It was so real and so honest. And that's the way people talked. That is the way people felt and that's the way they talked. Uh, yeah, I'm, well, I'm glad you brought up Brian Dennehy. I mean, an incredible talent, really, really amazing. I know he, he passed away this year the, or last year in 2020, and uh, will be remembered, I think, for for many roles. But his heavies, he plays the heavy. He play, he can, he can do, he can do it like nobody else. I mean, I, I, I hear really, really incredibly nice guy, but like, boy, could he, could he just really dial up the uh, dark and fear and dread? And he's done it so well for for so you know so many times, and it was it was really you know, he really did a, you know, knocked it out of the park in, in this movie. Oh, boy, I, did I, he I, ever. Excellent casting. Yes, oh, for sure. just wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Well, Barry, hey, uh, when we spoke a few years ago, I asked you if there was any place people could follow you online, and you were like, well, you know, Spike's been giving me a hard time about this. Maybe maybe I'll, I'll change that soon. Uh, did you ever do that? Did you ever decide that to, to make something so people could, could reach out I've to you if they Instagram wanted to? I've got Instagram under Barry Alexander Brown. Oh, all right, you do. You didn't have you didn't have that last time, so. <laughs> nothing on there. I, I promise I will start putting things on. I will, I will, I will. I will, I will, I will. Well, uh, Barry, fantastic to have you back on the show. Really enjoyed this conversation, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks. Thanks so much. So that was Barry Alexander Brown. I have not seen the film yet, so I cannot wait to uh, check it out. Hopefully I'll get a screener or some way of seeing it soon. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that uh, you might really enjoy it. I, I will tell you my honest opinion, regardless. Okay, great. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it's our famed short end 
time of the show. Uh, I know you've been sick, but do you have any uh, any I, obsessions? I, I, I do. Week? Well, I have an obsession. Is, is it that, Nyquil? No, <laughs> I have an obsession that got me through the COVID. Oh, uh, oh um, okay. I can't wait to hear what this is. And it's a YouTube channel, uh, and it's from Screen Rant, which Screen Rant actually does, I think, some really good stuff. You know, they do like some deep dives into stuff, but this is pure comedy. It's called Pitch Meetings. I, maybe I'm a little bit behind the curve. Um, maybe a lot of our listeners have already heard of Pitch Meetings. I found it right around the time that I got sick. <laughs> um, and I plowed, there are hundreds of them. And it's a guy named Ryan George, who apparently was inspired by one of my favorite comedians, John Mulaney, who has a bit in one of his acts where he talks about the pitch for Back to the Future and kind of lays out Back to the Future in a way that you've never really thought about it. And it's hilarious because it kind of exposes all the weird plot holes. Like, why is this teenager hanging out with this disgraced nuclear physicist? (laughs) So he goes through and he plays in every episode of Pitch Meeting, he plays the executive and the writer. And it just kind of cuts back and forth, rapid fire style. And uh, when he's the writer, he's wearing glasses. And when he's the executive, he's not. And it kind of exposes all the plot holes in every movie he talks about. And they've done over 100 of them. I think they've done over 200 of them. One of my personal favorites was Dr. Doolittle, or excuse me, I think it's just called Doolittle, the one that just came out recently with Robert Downey Jr. Because like a lot of times the executive will ask a question and the writer you know, will be like, well, why does he have to do this? And he'll say, so the movie will happen. And, you know, like I'm going to ruin it if I try and explain what's funny about it. But I think that uh, (laughs) if if you love movies and obviously this guy loves movies, just kind of exposing them for all of their flaws and all their plot holes and stuff is is kind of a fun way to kind of uh, I don't know, to to kind of think about the writing in a funny way. And for me, while I was laid out with covid, it was uh, very, very easy for me to just watch these on my phone and, uh, um, you know, I kind feel, of feel through most of them and not think about how I might be about to die. So, 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 so Ben, let me ask you if our audience does not want to go through a hundred of these, what is one, maybe two that you really like that they, that they could watch, um, that, that, I, that typifies this, this, series? uh, Doolittle was great. Batman and Robin was amazing like he he does a lot of superhero stuff so like the avengers ones and, and mm. anyone within the avengers world are are pretty funny and um did, did you watch the latest one which i see is the pirates of the caribbean oh so. yes okay, uh, and gotcha. uh jurassic park Jura- the the original jurassic park was just brilliant but like to me even though i've never even seen doolittle the doolittle one was just hilarious because they stumbled across stuff where it was like, yeah, this movie isn't made out of logic. This movie is just made out of necessity to get to the next thing. And he, I mean, he does movies that are beloved, like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies or Inception or whatever. But uh, and he did one for Tenet, too. The Tenet one is uh, is, is pretty amazing because Tenet uh, is uh, definitely a, a masterpiece in confusion. So it, it was fun to hear. So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of this week? Well, you know, I have to say this obsession has been going on now, maybe 12 years. So it's not exactly a, a weekly obsession, but, you know, uh, I started my company back in 2009 uh, with an invention. It was an invention that I, I came up with when I had a little bit of inside information about a new camera coming up. That was this thing called a mirrorless camera. It didn't have a mirror in it. It was going to f- shoot an actual recognized standard of HD and when I found out it had a really short flange depth, which meant that there's not a lot of room before between where you put the lens and the sensor, 
uh, I was like, wow, I could adapt this to put professional cinema lenses on it. And so I built this thing called the Hot Rod PL. And after now 12 years, I've finally come out with a updated new version of it. I mean, I mean, it's hard to mess with perfection. I mean, it's hard to, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, do better you, you, than you sound like you sound like you're uh, full of yourself, but honestly, I remember you standing in my driveway showing me the prototype for the PL thing. And I'm like, you're going to make a million dollars off of this. And thing. I totally did not. It turns out not too many people want, want that, that PL mount, the, the thing way back then. And had I been smarter, I would have patented it and done a bunch of things. And then I wouldn't have been ripped off by a bunch of companies and then China ripping it off and, you know, it being available. But uh, I will tell you, there was a lot of, th- engineering and work and stuff that went into that early version that uh, still to this day, none of the copycats ever copied because they didn't understand why it was there. They just, you know, did their own sort of version of it. Uh, but I've taken all of those things that made it great. And I'd like to think that I found a few extra things. So now I've got like professional stainless steel shims and I've got a anti-reflective blo- flocking material that is so black inside that stray light doesn't uh, make your image uh, become low contrast or washed out or get weird flares. Uh, and I, I've done a, a couple other cool little tricks to it. So it's compatible with a couple other things. It has a new support, but uh, it's also going to be a lot cheaper. And we're going to do a special promo to at least for a little while that if someone buys particular cameras from us, uh, any camera basically over $5,000, what should be a $500 product is going to be 99 bucks we're going to do nice. essentially uh yeah we're going to do something that that's really uh, amazing like same what, thing with what cameras what, what in the current crop of cameras what cameras does this fit in fit on well uh, we've got three versions that are shipping in short order two that are available right now the first one is the canon rf mount to pl so it'll work like on the komodo and the canon c70 you can put our, our pl mount on those cameras or basically any other canon rf mount camera out there and then also uh, Sony E-mount. We did a, re- a refresh of our Sony E to PL, and so this is going to work on any of the new uh, A7S cameras, like the A7S III, which is quite popular, or the Sony FX6, which uh, is the smallest, least expensive, full-frame, dedicated cinema camera out there. So, yeah, there, there's quite a few things out there, but you can put on FX9. You could even put it on if you wanted to, a Venice via the E-mount that's on it. There's any camera that's got an E-mount or an RF mount, we're, we're good to go. We very shortly will also have Panasonic uh, slash Sigma slash Leica L mount. So that's coming. That and was my next question because Panasonic was like, that was the one you made it for originally was the GH1, GH2? It was the GH1. Actually, we made it for the G1 before there even was a, an H1, but uh, which was a uh, a still only camera. It didn't have a a, a movie function, but um, but yeah. So the new Panasonic S1H and all of those cameras, the S5, everything that they may have in the Leica L mount, we've got that coming here very shortly. I've got a couple at the shop right now, and uh, yeah, we're doing some cool specials, and we're making it so that if you actually send us your camera, we'll shim it for free, so that your focus marks all line up and are accurate. And I know that sounds like sort of uh, some heady, esoteric stuff, but for people who shoot narrative style and they have to have the focus marks on their lenses be accurate because there's a focus puller and actors have to hit their marks and everything else, we try to facilitate that and make that as easy as possible for people to be able to shoot that way. And I think that um, I think that this, you know, we may not sell as many as the original one did, but uh, I'm hopeful because it's clear. I think it's the best product we've ever made. I think it's it's incredible. So. Well, and that's awesome. And I also feel like it's interesting to think about like when you came out with the original one, 
the idea of shooting SLR photography in, in a professional setting was kind of nuts. Like no one was really doing it yet. We, we hadn't had, you know, we hadn't had Shane Hurlbut and, and active valor yet. We hadn't had a lot, a lot of the people who were, who, who normalized professional use of DSLR and SLR cameras. And now it's, just sort of like I'm, I assume most shows probably roll with at least something like that in their kit somewhere. Yeah, you know, you know, actually, it, it might be. I think it, I think it's less than you think. And and Shane Hurlbut and Active Valor, they were early customers of ours. We modified Canon's uh, cameras for them for for that movie. But yeah, I would say that dedicated small cinema cameras are very much uh, the standard. And you find more and more mirrorless cameras or SLR style cameras becoming the A camera. Uh, as you move down in budget, occasionally big shows, TV series, uh, shows like Scandal, they they used our cameras and our stuff all the time. Yeah. And there were a few, a few out there like that were very much they shot on big professional cameras. But then there was like little, you know, small, I, I won't say throwaway, but like fixed lock off shots. Like if you ever saw Scandal, every downward shot from from the ceiling of the Oval Office was one of our cameras mounted to the ceiling. That's nice. that was the, how, how they did that. So and and. I think there's a lot of productions out there that that do have that, but they don't tend to be the A camera, the thing that everything uh, no, that's, revolves that's, but around. But that's my point is I feel like they just have it floating around in their kit somewhere so that second unit or, you know, if, if there's an action sequence. Get an sequence insert shot need, of this, yeah. Explosion yeah, I mean, cam, yeah. And, and, and those cameras, like, they, they cut in perfectly, but you want to have the same glass on those that you have on your on your big A camera if you're using, you know, a, a Venice or an Alexa or whatever. And so to me, it was always brilliant conceptually, uh, but it was so forward looking from you back then. And I feel like today it, it's less of a leap to say to someone like, hey, you could, you know, you could have an A7S Mark III in your kit and, and use it for, you know, the action scene where you need to mount the camera to the car or whatever, but you want the good lenses. This is the way to do it. I agree. hundred percent. Yeah. That, that, that's what it comes down to. But, uh, but you'll find that, uh, lower budget productions, the, the cameras, the mirrorless cameras, the small digital cinema cameras, the, the small format ones, the mini cine cameras out there, they're incredibly capable. And so if you've got good lenses, you can really work like you would with a big camera. I mean, that without yeah. a lot of compromise. Yeah. No, no. I mean, the, the look that you're getting out of those cameras these days is just, you know, mind blowing. And, and, and getting better all the time. So Ilya, uh, where can people find you if they want to uh, reach out and, uh, you know, rudely demand a t-shirt or something? <laughs> uh, well, we're curbside during the pandemic for the moment, but we, now that they've listed, lifted some restrictions, so we are opening back up to a point. The California so numbers are coming down. The California I, numbers are not as horrific as they were even a few weeks ago when I got this crap. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's really nice to see the numbers moving in the right direction. So, uh, so yeah, we're going to, uh, allow people to come into the store on a, on a one-on-one basis type of things. So it's all very socially distant. We, um, yeah, we're, we're, uh, you can find me at hot ride cameras, hot ride cameras is where I am Monday through Friday. And that's where you can find the hot rod PL. And in the show notes over at camnoir.com, we'll, uh, we'll have links to, to all this stuff. Excellent. Um, you can find me at benrockonline.com. That's where you can find all of my social media links and all that crap. You can watch my reel, see what I'm up to. I uh, haven't really added to my directing reel for over a year because uh, there have well, been no it's, shoots. It's been quite a year. Yeah, it's not it hasn't 2020, 2021 so far, you know, but uh, I, I may have some news pretty soon uh, about a project. Ooh, so that's I'll, exciting. I'll, I'll, I'll tease that here. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Go check that out. And Ilya, who do we need to thank for everything this week? 
Let's thank Ben Katz. Let's start with Ben Katz. Editor you know, Ben, ben Katz, Katz reached out to me while I was sick, by the way, and it was very nice. That jerk. No. <laughs> <laughs> did he say, I hope you feel better? Or what did yeah, he say? yeah, no, no. He, he reached out and, uh, and, and said uh, that the show missed me. And I was like, I miss doing the show. Oh, well, that, that, that's extremely sweet. I, I mean, what, what, a, what a nice man. Now he, he's going to be forced to have the uh, dilemma to leave in me saying nice things about him or to cut out stuff about himself. I hope he leaves it in. Fair enough. Okay. So uh, we should also thank Alana Cody, who uh, has uh, not had COVID and therefore has been charging full steam ahead on uh, lining up some amazing interviews that we have coming up. Oh, my God. Even next week is great. So, yeah, we got so much. Stuff Even happening. next week. Even next week, yes. Not, not, uh-huh. not like this week. You know, hey, while you were while you were sick, she kept me pretty damn busy. So, got had a, I had three interviews in there, three good ones, and uh, now we got a couple more next week. So sweet. Yeah, I, I like and, being and busy. I, I basically said to her, I said after this, no more three interview weeks. That's too much. Three, three interview weeks are, are are rough. Uh, it's rough to kind of dozy do the rest of your life you around get, a three gotta, interview. You got to prepare. I mean, we don't phone it in. We watch people's stuff. I mean, it's like let me tell you, I I've been. I've been in the room with uh, with the journalists at some festivals and events and stuff who are like, and who are you again? And what was your movie? And I kind of feel like do your effing homework. And it's like, no, we we want to prepare. We want to know everything about who it is. And uh, if you're if you're not that person who doesn't know going in, you you ought to consider another line of work. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And lastly, especially especially for us, for someone who who doesn't get paid to do this. So (laughs) nary a cent. Um, and, uh, lastly, we would like to thank, uh, Kay's Alatrachi who, uh, composed all of the music that you're hearing on this. And there is a low percentage chance he's listening to this episode, but you never ooh, know. Ooh. You, th- you think there's like a 2% chance? I think that there's always at least a 2.5% chance that Kay's oh. is listening to an episode all of right. this. Well then I, I will say, I will not say not listening then uh, Kay's. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thanks Kay's. Thanks for all the listening that you do. <laughs> Never mind the composing. Just the listening. <laughs> Just the listening. <laughs> anyway, so uh, that is it. And uh, we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. We're glad to have you back, Ben. I'm so happy to be back. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.